All right, let's do this. Welcome to the Post to Post podcast. I am your host, Jason. This is episode two. Thank you for listening. Hit us up on Twitter at Post to Post Show. Your feedback is always welcome. And as always, check out the guys, youtube.com slash post to post. In this episode, we have a very special guest, Neil's dad, Brent, the host of Two Minutes for Charging and some of Neil's videos when he goes on his rants, was in studio with us a few days ago for about an hour, and we had a fantastic hockey conversation about his life growing up in Montreal, being a Montreal Canadiens fan. We talked about where the game was in the 70s and 80s and kind of compared it to how it is now. We talked about rules and coaches' challenges and all sorts of things. It was just a fantastic hockey conversation. I'm going to play that for you now. I hope you enjoy it. Have a listen. All right, so we're sitting here with Neil's dad. Lots of people have been making comments about Neil's dad, and they like Neil's dad from the YouTube videos. So love you. We're going to take some time to get to know Neil's dad a little bit more. So mm-hmm. why don't you tell us, growing up in Montreal, being a Montreal Canadiens fan, how that was? That's the greatest thing in the world. Um, for the first 15 years of my life, it's all I knew. It wasn't really special. you know. It, as far as I was concerned, everybody lived in Montreal, and everybody was a Montreal Canadiens fan. So I didn't really think of it as a big, big deal. It was just part of the daily life of living in a city like that. And uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be living at a time when they were rolling out some nice dynasties, and they had great success. And almost every second year, they won the Cup. In the first uh, probably 15 or 16 years of my life, they won the cup, you know, 10 times. That's incredible type numbers. And uh, you just got used to it. But it was great. Uh, I mean, it's it's a town that loves its sports. Uh, Whenever there was a great cup in Montreal, the place went crazy. Whenever there's a Stanley Cup in Montreal, the place went crazy. And it was just great to live there. And I think what's happened in the last three decades is that Montreal fans have lost that connection with the regularity of winning a cup and now it's a very special thing and it's almost a unicorn thing and uh, we're almost to the phase where you know Toronto's looking at 50 years since they won the cup we're now looking at well over 20 and uh, we're starting to feel you know feel Toronto's pain and uh, I don't know it's 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 not a feeling I'm used to but I'm getting used to it, and I'm not happy about it. Like, there's one of those videos where you showed off a parade on yeah, YouTube. 93. Yeah. Was that your your favorite moment in terms of Montreal Canadiens in Montreal? Or I think it has to be because I was 15 when we moved away, so I wasn't really, you know, I could get downtown on the buses and the subway, and I was I could move about the city when I was a teenager, but I, you know, wasn't really in control of my own day. Um, in 1993, I was there with my brother. We were adults; we could go where we pleased, and. And I was grown up enough at that point to realize the uh, the magic of what was going on and how important and precious the Stanley Cup was. Because even then, it had been seven years since we'd won the previous cup. And that sound seemed like a heck of a long time. And who would have thought it'd be another 24 plus before we'd win again? So, yeah, that's the magical moment for me because I was up close to the players. Yeah. I saw the cup go by. I saw the Conn Smythe go by. You could recognize the players. They were close to the fans. And uh, that's my highlight moment for being a Montreal fan so far. And that was, I guess, the best it's ever gotten for Patrick Waugh when he was there, that 93 win, because he won in 86. But 93 was a pretty fairy tale win. I think they won 11 overtime games or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something crazy like that. You know, they had to win, I think it was 14 games maybe to get the cup back then, because I think one of the series was a best of five. Yeah. Um, now it's 16. But uh, yeah, he he was in 86 when he first won the cup. 
he was almost in as a fill-in goalie at that time. He was a rookie, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a rookie. And, and he, in fact, the following year, he might have actually qualified as rookie. I forget. But but he went in just like Ken Dryden went in, you know, in the previous to that, where you just pull those goalie out of the minors and throw them in because you've got a need. Yep. And the goalie just goes crazy. Like Matt Murray last year. Yeah, like Matt Murray last year. Mm. Same sort of thing. And uh, in in 1993, though, he was the starting goalie. He was the franchise. He was adored by the fans. And this was a couple of years before the big blow-up he had with the uh, Ron Corey and, and walking off the bench. Right. Was that 95? That was 95, yeah. And it was just a matter of weeks after you, Neil, and I and your mother were up to a game in the forum. Really? Yeah, we were up to a game. And that was Hartford. Against Hartford, Hartford Whalers. It was one of the last games in the Montreal Forum, and I I wanted you to be in the Forum like I was in the Forum when right. I was a kid to see at least one game because I knew after that it would be a newer rink and it wouldn't have the same magic. So, yeah, yeah. I, I do remember parts of that, but I didn't realize it was that close to the Patrick Watt firing. Yeah, it was very close. Uh, we were up there in November. might have been 94, like it, it 94, was, 95 yeah. season. Yeah, so we were there in November of 94, and I think the blow-up was in maybe February. Hmm. When Patrick Waugh, you know, was uh, eventually traded to Colorado. Yeah. And uh, that, I, it was a shock and, and still, I think, a shock to a lot of people. And and that that happened, it just showed how out of touch the Montreal Canadiens management had become. Yeah. With, uh, you know, their fan base and their players, really. Well, if you look at, I mean, the, the decision there was, do we choose Patrick Waugh or do we choose who was the coach at the time? At the time, it was... Uh, Mario Tremblay or something Mario like that? Mario Tremblay, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, at, it was choose Patrick Waugh or choose the coach, and they mm-hmm. chose the coach. And so if, if we look at this year, yeah. Jack Eichel, the situation that just happened, he said he wouldn't be back mm-hmm. or something like that if... He wouldn't play for that coach? Yeah, he wouldn't play for yeah. that coach anymore, and they and, made the And that's what we heard publicly. If you go back just a few more months, they had the choice between P.K. Subban and the coach, and that time it was Michelle Therrien. Yeah, exactly. And they chose the coach, yeah. and now there's no Subban, and there's no coach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's fair to say you were against that, Patrick Waugh. I was. I was very disappointed, and you know, I don't know what the mind of a goalie is like. I, you know, Some goalies, you know, Carey Price, when he was being stoned in uh, Columbus, 10 nothing. Oh, that was Montoya. Yes, that was Montoya that got stoned, exactly. And and Carey wanted to go in he, at one point. There was, there was a game he was pulled in. Uh, I think it was after that, yeah. and he gave that was the game that he gave the glare to Michael Terry. Right. And at, since after that date, he played terrible the rest of the season. Yeah, he did. And you know, some goalies want to be there and take it, and some goalies, yeah, they they want to take the break. Like Holtby got pulled, um, you know, a few games ago in, yep. in, the, in for Washington, and he came back and played a great game he the next game, best game he, of the of the playoffs. Yeah. I think he had a shutout. Did he not? Uh, he almost had a shutout. Almost, yeah. He just let one in. Yeah, he let two in. In the last like three minutes or something like that, but they did win the game. Mm-hmm. So, so on a related note, what do you think about players having control over teams in that kind of way? Because we well, see it in the NBA with like LeBron James and mm. things like that. So, I'm just what's what's your opinion on that? I guess you know some teams and some some players uh, for whatever sport it might be are so darn special that you have to give them a wide berth. I think Carey Price is one of those players. I think mm-hmm. Sidney Crosby is one of those players. I think Ovechkin's one of those players where the management might sit down, as they did, I think, behind Michelle Therrien's back on the West Coast road trip just before they canned him. Yeah. You know, they sat down with Carey Price, Max Pacioretty, and I think Shea Weber. I think the three of them met, you know, with uh, Molson or at mm-hmm. least with uh, Bergevin, and they had a, a conversation. And those three guys were speaking probably on behalf of the dressing room. Um, it's difficult if a player is ma- mentally mature to carry that extra weight because that's extra weight on your shoulders when you're, 
you know, influencing coaching decisions or who the coach is. Um, if the player is mature enough to handle that, I think it's fine um, because I'd rather have that player and keep them happy than never have them at all. But, uh, you know, it's all how it's managed in the dressing room with all the other players. Some players would be sitting there saying, my God, I'm, I'm the luckiest guy in the face of the earth. I get to play with Sidney Crosby. You know, and another player might say, you know, Sidney Crosby's a light that's shining too bright and I'm, I'm mm. too dim. Mm-hmm. And I don't like this. You know, it's 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 all chemistry. I, I I don't think there's a one good answer for it. So before Tarion was canned, uh, Bergevin was always saying, "I stand behind my coach. I stand yeah, behind because my coach. they were friends as well." Yeah. Oh, yeah. So do you think the the move towards that meeting was a player move, or do you think that was an ownership move, saying you got to you got to change something here, or at least get some feedback from the guys in the room? I'm hoping it was an ownership move. Mm-hmm. I, I I wouldn't want the three players to be going behind someone's back and banging on a door. Um, you know, can, can we, can we come in and talk to you? You know, we have a problem. Um, I'm thinking it probably went the other way, you know, Bergevin or maybe Molson or probably Bergevin just said, you know, called them up and said, look, you know, let, let's have a conversation. Uh, maybe, maybe, uh, Terry and knew uh, that the meeting was going to take place too. Then that would be fair, mm-hmm. but it's, it's really delicate. Terry had a style. I didn't dislike the guy, but he was really sour on some players and it showed and he was really high in other players that, a lot of the fan base didn't think deserved it. The yeah. RNA was an example. It was strange. It was very strange. And and he had these personal preferences for ice time and and putting players into certain situations that just didn't seem to make any sense. And you get in a bubble, you know. I think he was in a bubble and he saw the team his way. And he probably, maybe to this day, is convinced that if he was still allowed to run the team the way he wanted to run it, they'd still be playing right now. I don't know. Yeah, and he was a chronic line juggler as well. Oh, God. That was terrible. frustrating. And probably frustrating for the players as well. I mean, they want to get in a groove and play with a line mate. Um, you know, Pacioretty and, and Radulov played together, I think, uh, maybe a third into the season, and they really clicked. Mm-hmm. And then they were taken away, and then yep. they were put back, and then they were taken away. And that can be frustrating. Yep. So, And I don't think it helps when broadcasters just generally talk about the first line, second line, third line. <laughs> That's right. For oh, a while. Yeah. Like when it came to the fourth line, they knew that that sounded bad, so they started calling it the energy line. You know, a couple of years back, you know, oh, this is the energy line, and trying to basically put lipstick on a pig. You know? <laughs> but thankfully, because of the skill that's on a lot of teams now, the fourth line is a very skilled line too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And in some games, we've seen it in the playoffs. The fourth line is the line that can't be checked as well. That's right. As the plans they've made for the top three lines. Exactly. And the fourth line's doing the damage. Yeah, Ottawa has a great fourth line. Yeah. Boston this year, I think, had a pretty decent fourth line. Yeah. So, so I'm not going to keep this episode totally on Montreal, but I do have one more question. <laughs> sure. What is your opinion on their policy for only having a French coach? Because the argument I see for it is that a big chunk of Quebec's media or viewership is French speaking, so it's it's I don't know if it's polite or I don't the right word is you know it's they have the right to be able to hear the interviews in their own language. So yeah. I'm just. Like, what's your opinion of having the best coach that can't speak French or just taking the best one that does speak French? Well, the minute you start to think about considerations that are anything other than coaching ability and hockey ability, you start to run the risk watering down who you get. Um, I don't know that it's that critical that um, you have to have a francophone, like mother tongue French coach for Montreal. But I also think that if you do hire an English coach, one of the job requirements should be intensive French training so he can answer mm-hmm. questions. He doesn't have to have been from Montreal or Quebec City or someplace himself. He could be an American or from the West as far as I'm concerned. And Montreal has succeeded in the past with Scotty Bowman, for instance. We had Scotty Bowman as a coach. 
I don't think he spoke a word of French. If he did, it wasn't very much. We had uh, Al McNeil as a coach. You know, this is going back before you guys were even around. But Montreal has had a lot of unilingual English-speaking coaches in the past. And I think whether you're an English-speaking Montreal fan or a French-speaking Montreal fan, I think your main goal is winning as opposed to understanding the coach explaining why you lost. Yeah. I, I, it frustrates me because... And maybe I shouldn't use the word frustrate, but it's an English world, and I'm sure that everyone in Quebec who speaks French, probably I'd say at least 70 to 80% of them also speak English or understand it, because it is an English world. So there's, for to me, it's only really about 20% of the people who might not get it. That's true, but like being from Quebec myself and understanding the culture a little better... For a francophone, it's not just about whether they can understand what's being said. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. I think most of them can understand what's being said. But if the person who's uh, not native French is trying in French, it's a huge show of respect. Right. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's that's really the distinction is, does the team, does the coach, does the general manager respect me as a person well enough to try to communicate with me? in a way that, you know, that, that they understand my, my situation. And I, and I think that's a very, very important thing. Even if it's not a comprehension thing, it's still a, an important thing. And I think, I, I like what you said there, because we talk about Saku Koivu back mm-hmm. in the day. He got some flack when he first came to Montreal because he didn't want to speak French. And then he actively learned how to speak French, and everybody loved him. Yep. So I, I, I understand. And you don't have to be that great at the French either. If, if you show you're trying right. and they can understand that you're struggling you know, with it perhaps and uh, and you're giving it your best shot, you've shown the respect at that point and yeah. I think you get credit at that point. That doesn't mean you should stop trying to get better. Uh, you <laughs> definitely should. And I think every coach who coaches in a market like Montreal with a crush uh, needs to at least uh, have a darn good reason <laughs> why why they're not answering more questions in French. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the French media is, I watch a lot of French media. I watch RDS, I watch TVA, and they go through a lot of torture when they're interviewing English-speaking players. If they're going to Steve Ott or they're going to Pacioretty, you know, they have to ask their questions in English. Right. And they have to hear the answer in English. And then they put the microphone, they look at the camera, and then they translate what the guy just said on the ice after he got the first star or whatever. Um, you know, that's... I think that's the French community coming a long way into the English world to try to get what they need to have. Yeah. So I think we need to respect that too. Yeah, and we're, like, you grew up in Montreal. You, your first language is English, but you speak French as well. I only speak English. I don't mm-hmm. speak any French. But I think I can say with confidence that we both prefer to watch Montreal games in French Absolutely. on RDS. It's, it's like night and day. Yeah. Um, the, the French announcers are highly knowledgeable. They're very professional. Yeah. And they're extremely into the game. They're excited uh, to watch the hockey. And here's something else that I think is important. This goes to all teams. It seems that Montreal, maybe to a slightly lesser extent Ottawa, isn't allowed to have a hometown announcer on the CBC, maybe even Toronto. Like announcers on the CBC and Sportsnet, they move from town to town. Montreal doesn't have its own announcer like it used to. We used to have Danny Gallivan. The Leafs had Foster Hewitt. Right. And it was expected that the announcing team would be a bit of a homer team. And that's not a bad thing. Because in the States, like I listened to the Nashville game last <laughs> night on the radio, Nashville versus um, um, St. Louis. Louis. And it was unbelievably partisan. Yeah. But if I'm a Nashville fan, that's exactly mm-hmm. what I want. <laughs> yeah. you know. But the CBC, they come along and they throw Bob 
Cole or Boob Cole, and they throw him in, or they throw in, you know, Paul Romanuk, who, you know, these people are credible announcers in a way, but they know that they have an audience that's going to be cheering for either of the two teams. So they're afraid to be a homer. They don't Mm -hmm. want to. And then back to your question. The French media, it's obvious who they want to have win. <laughs> yeah. But they also respect a good hockey game, too. And if someone makes a great play, they'll say so. Oh, yeah. It's not like they're blind. Yeah. But it, it's more evident to me when I'm watching a French hockey broadcast that they're cheering for the Montreal Canadiens. They want the Montreal Canadiens to do well. And the game is focused on Montreal. And nowadays with the modern media, if I wanted the other team's broadcast, I'd go get it. Absolutely. Yeah. And we can all do that. Yeah, can See, all, I've, never really, I've never even really thought about that, but he's absolutely right. Like the West Coast teams have, I, I guess, their media personalities that represent those teams. Yeah, LA is, and is on the quite... East Coast they don't, and I've never really thought about that until now. Well, I guess I think Boston does. Well, I, I mean, in Canadian teams. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you're, you're right. It's CBC that covers Toronto and Montreal most of the time, and yeah, it's national broadcasters covering <laughs> two of the biggest teams in the league. Yeah, which is kind of it. I guess TV ad covers the. The Montreal games, but I've never thought about that before. There's yeah. not dedicated personnel for those teams. Mm. And, you know, if you look at the World Series or even just the AL playoffs, you know, last year, I I don't like um, Martinez, uh, Buck Martinez for mm-hmm. the Blue Jays. I can't I can't stand him. I'm not a, <laughs> I just, I can't help myself. It's just the way he talks. It's everything about, about the man. He drives me crazy. <laughs> I've looked him up to see if I could find on Wikipedia reasons, more reasons why I shouldn't like him. <laughs> it's, it's totally unfair, but... When I hear him, he drives me so nuts. In that case, when they go to the, when it's time for the, the uh, playoffs to happen, then they go to a national broadcaster. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's Joe Buck. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they go to a national broadcaster and it, Martinez is out of the picture. So I can actually watch a Blue Jays game without having to suffer through Martinez. And uh, so in some cases, I guess the reverse is true, too. Sometimes I like it because if I like the national broadcaster better than the local guy. But I think Toronto, like Toronto has their local guy in the radio, you know, the Holy Mackinac guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all the teams have their, you know, their radio guys that, mm-hmm. that do yep. very local centric broadcast. That fool in Pittsburgh, you know, slap me silly, Sydney, you know, and <laughs> shave me with a rusty razor, you know, all that crazy <laughs> stuff. Or that total impossible to listen to guy in Boston, Jen uh, Rett. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. oh, it's a great night in Pominville, you know, until they traded him. But, you know, it they can do it on the radio. Why can't they do it on the TV? I, I think that'd be more fun. So while we're on the topic of broadcasters, what is your opinion of the Sportsnet crew that took over the last couple of years versus TSN? So we're talking about... We're talking about like, broadcasters like... Like Elliot and Rudy like, and... No, because they're not... I'm talking about color commentary, Oh, I okay. Guess. So I, I'm not, not a fan. I, I, I'm not either. I'm yeah. I'm yeah. not. You know what? And as much the, because I dislike Bell Media and the monopoly they have. When TSN lost and, and Sportsnet got it, I'm not a great fan of Rogers either. But I was happy to see the change because it was going to shake things up. And I'm you know loosely acquainted with some people on the Rogers side, and or I have you know distant connections with them, and I want them to succeed. And and you know overall, I think that you know it's a good thing uh, to to have a change like that. But the personnel didn't all shake out where I wanted them to mm-hmm. shake out. Yeah. And in the case of uh, Sportsnet, um, you know, I'm I'm not a Gary Galley fan. I'm I'm not a you know uh, Jason York. I think it is in Montreal. Like he's they're okay, but um, I don't know. I think TSN still has the the better and more experienced talent mm-hmm. there. And when TSN is doing hockey, as they occasionally will do in the yeah. regular season. Uh, or when they're doing it, you know, like juniors or under 17 or whatever, they still have a really credible crew there. And uh, I miss some of them, mm-hmm. not seeing them on Sportsnet. I, I think Sportsnet 
does not do a great job on the, on the sound part of it. What about Glenn Healy? Do you miss him? <laughs> you know what? I almost do. What? Really? I almost do. As much as I don't like him, I never did. I, I think I have people now that I listen to that I like even less. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And I, you know, and I hope you don't ask me to identify them, but... Uh, um, you know, I was like, for instance, Pierre Maguire is another example. Oh, right. you know, when Pierre Maguire was with TSN and TSN was doing hockey, I wanted to kill my television <laughs> because I just could not stand that man. I can't stand yeah. this, uh, just his whole obsession with players and their big legs mm-hmm. and their active feet and all this <laughs> crazy stuff. I just, it was creeping me out. But now he went to NBC in the States. Yeah. He was off Canadian television for a long time. Um, and I can see him, though, you know, on those NBC broadcasts that they used to have in the regular season on Sundays and now with the playoffs on the weekends. And I'm okay with him now. Like, I, you know, I'm, I've calmed down a bit. I'm sure he's the very same, but I've calmed down. I've grown up a bit. <laughs> but, uh, man, I, I, I was at a Buffalo game with a friend of mine several years back, and Pierre Maguire was there. And uh, he was there during the warm-up and it showed the, like, I, I'm up in the bowl at one end behind one of the nets halfway up the rink in Buffalo, and I'm looking down, and Pierre Maguire's there, and they got the TV camera on, and the players are out warming up, and I'm praying that someone rifles a puck right at him. <laughs> like, not, to, not to hurt the man, but just it would be great television. It would be great for me um, because I just, at that time, I just wanted him to go away. He was everywhere. Like, here I was at a Buffalo game. I've never been to a Buffalo game in my life, and there's friggin' Pierre Maguire sitting there, and it's just, <laughs> why? Why? Why is he following me around? Yeah. So l- let me ask you this. Who's your favorite play-by-play guy currently? And doesn't not I'm not talking about Sportsnet TSN. I'm broadly over any network. Without any question, it's Mike Emmerich for NBC. Absolutely, Doc yeah. Emmerich. Doc is the man. Mm-hmm. He is the man. That guy can make uh, a pancake sound exciting. Yeah, I mean he he is tremendous. His voice goes up and down as it needs to. It's so unique. It's it is, and he he uses words consciously. He thinks about what he's going to say. Yeah, and and you know he's. He's just fantastic. He he really, really is. I have, you know, some problems with the rest of the NBC crew, like Mike Milbury, and I yeah. you know, can't stand him. But but Doc Emmerich is, is he's a legend, and hopefully he's young enough that he's going to be around for a long time. If he keeps broadcasting as long as Bob Cole's been broadcasting, <laughs> I'll be long dead before he's done. Exactly, yeah. But uh, long answer to a short question, he's the guy. He is the guy. See, I've always said to Neil, and, and I say it jokingly, but it's a bad thing to joke about, is I always say that Doc's going to have a heart attack giving a play-by-play game, play by game, because that's how excited he gets when he does it. And I remember seeing a report where he used like 140 different adjectives to describe the play that was happening, and, and yeah. you don't get that from anybody else, no. I don't find. No, you don't. And, you know, there are Canadian broadcasters who try. Um, Paul Romanuk, I you know, I like 90% of what he does. But every game, he tries to throw in a Danny Gallivan quote. Now, if you're old like me, you know what Danny Gallivan quotes are. Danny Gallivan would, would, after a fight, you know, the players are skating away. Well, that's the end of that fistic set, too, you know. And, like, it was just something Danny Gallivan would say. He didn't say it a lot. He didn't hang a, ha- you know, ha- a hook on it. Yeah. But one of the things he would do is, is say, negotiate contact, you know. Uh, <laughs> Oh, so and so, and they were going into the boards, and they failed to negotiate contact. And you know that—that's a—it's a typical quirky thing Danny Gallivan would say. Paul Romanuk tries to say negotiate contact once at least every game, because he's trying to become or step into the shoes of Danny Gallivan, and he just needs to stop it. Yeah, you, he'll never be Danny Gallivan, so stop trying. It drives me crazy. Doc Emmerich is his own guy, and that's like the 140 adjectives you mm-hmm. talked about. That may, I never read that, but I believe it. Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense. 
Um, the guy is a thinking hockey announcer, and he still manages to make it exciting. And just the like the inflection that he uses in his voice during certain moments, it's just, I don't want to use the word addictive, but I mean, you just, you, you remember, like you remember highlights that he's called. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I won't talk about Doc, but uh, Jim Houston has a great save Luongo. Yes. Yeah. Like, that's, that's everywhere. And I, I like Jim Houston. I know a lot of people don't, but I do. And he does most of the Western games. Generally, yeah. Right? Generally, yeah. yeah. He's been doing some of the Toronto-type playoff games now, I think, lately. But, uh, yeah, I agree. He's you know mostly Vancouver-centered, or yeah. West Coast, at least, or West Because West. that's where he lives, so it makes yeah. sense that he's... Yeah, but my I don't dislike Jim Houston, but I he's not my favorite... I, I I get the sense that he's trying to really not pop his peas and do those kinds of things. So like I I find that he's kind of holding his voice in a little bit. It, it, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it sounds like he's almost a little too manufactured when he talks. Just talk, just talk, and you know if something just blows you away. Just say so. I mean it's it's. Um, I think we need to get a little less plasticky and a little more human being, fleshy. You know, in, yeah. in our stuff, we've gone away from that with all this technology, which is crap. Absolutely, I. <laughs> uh, this might be a little off topic and we've spoken about this before, but I think it's important that, that uh, other people hear this as well. There are certain terms that we don't like to hear. Half boards. Half boards. Uh, half wall. Half wall. The, this drives me crazy because the wall has never been higher. Why is it the half wall all of a sudden? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Well, and I go, I'd go even farther. Why is it a wall? Well, <laughs> if you look in the hockey rule book, whether yeah. it's the NHL or the NHL Officials Association or the IWHF, I don't think you'll find the word wall anywhere. Nope. Um, there's a penalty for when you smash someone up against the wall, and it's not called walling <laughs> because it's actually the boards, yeah. not the wall. And it's, you know, just because they're not made of wood anymore doesn't mean they're not the boards. Exactly. And just call it the boards and call it the glass. You know, you rung it off the glass, you know, or the upper wall. You know, that sounds stupid. Or yeah. the half wall or the full wall. Any wall at all, I object. And yeah, they don't call stangents that anymore. They're calling them uprights now, oh, yeah. which pisses me yeah. off. When, and which means that that's, you want to kick the football between those two. Is that what you want to do? Because yeah. that's what uprights are. They're the two posts where you make your field goal. All right, so there's a couple of questions I want to ask you that I that were talked about yesterday on a sports program, but I want to preface that by saying, how do you compare the hockey now to hockey in the 70s or 80s? Do you like it more? Do you like it less? I know it's different. Do you like where it's gone, I guess? That's where we'll start. I have to say I do for the most part. I like, you know, back in the 70s, for instance, um, you were you were called uh, with offside on the two-line pass. The red line existed at center mm-hmm. ice. The game was a lot slower, more grindy. Um, oftentimes in the 70s, the players, if they wanted to take a break, the players would just slide over to the, to the wall, and they would both put their skates on the puck, and if they stood there for more than three or four seconds, the referee would blow the whistle and they'd have a face-off. Now, you know, play the puck, play the puck. And, mm-hmm. and if they yeah. futz with it for 45 seconds, they'll still have to play that damn puck. And hardly ever, unless someone falls on it and, you know, they might get injured, uh, the referee's not going to blow the whistle. So I like that. The game is so much faster. It's scarier. I would like a return to wooden sticks, though, which uh, is counterintuitive to everything else I just said, because I'm tired of seeing broken sticks all mm-hmm. over the ice in yeah, these playoffs. It's, it's crazy. You know, these are $1,000 sticks, and they're breaking... You know, like there was a slash call uh, last night. I don't know which game it was, but there was a slash call where one player, one hand, you know, on his stick and just kind of waved it over towards the other. And he just hit that carbon fiber stick or whatever it was in the right place and the thing snapped in two. It never, you know, in a wooden stick era, that would never be a slashing penalty. But now if the stick breaks, the the hand goes up and the guy's in the box. Automatic. 
And, and I just think that's not really fair because those sticks are very flimsy. Now, when you see someone rip one, you know, P.K. Subban back at the blue line, and you see that thing flex 35 degrees as it's snapping that puck, it's a work of art to see that. And the puck goes into the net at 108 miles an hour, and that's all beautiful. But I don't think that part of the game is any better than it used to be. Back in the days when Larry Robinson or Al McInnes or someone like that was blasting pucks, you know, they were only a few miles an hour slower, and they were yeah. using wooden sticks. And uh, I'd like to see, you know, baseball has the wooden bat rule. You can play aluminum bats in the minor leagues or other leagues, but you get to the majors, you're you're playing with wood. And I, hockey, I'd like to see that. Now, that's not really on your question, but overall, I do like now's nowadays hockey better than the old. Okay, no, it's 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 relevant because there was a there was a panel show on last night that people were talking about uh, things they weren't happy with, changes they'd want to see, and uh, there was it was actually a heated argument, and there was. Usually they kind of agree with one thing. One guy will kind of say, I don't know, he's like 30% and the rest are 70%. This was right down the middle, a split argument. The first thing was about should referees call penalties by the rule book or should they be letting things go gray area? And the argument against it was, well, you're going to spend the whole game in the penalty box slash power play. And the counter argument was, well, if you call the game as it's supposed to be called, players will adapt and then the, the game will continue on i think i'd favor the second argument you know I, I i have some pretty unorthodox views on certain hockey rules but i think if those rules were enforced or enforced the way i wanted them it it, it generates a change in behavior that's right so there's there's an adjustment period that would be hectic and it would look unfair you know some teams would be in the penalty box like you say all the time but it wouldn't last for long because teams that are in the penalty box all the time they tend to lose hockey games and when you lose enough hockey games you start changing the way you you approach yep. the game so I'd be in favor of argument number two. I can understand argument number one, but to have it, the more objectivity and less subjectivity in officiating, the better, I think, because then it's going to be truly fair or fairer to more of the teams more most of the time. So would you consider yourself not to be like a pure hockey historian, like the guys get on there saying, I don't want this change, this is how it's always been? Are you open to changes or do you do you kind of want things to stay how they were? I want things to stay mostly the same when it comes to physical measurement of things. Like I wouldn't be in favor of drastic rink size changes. See, and that or, was that was the second yeah. argument was Brian Burke was Bur- on yeah, there. Exactly, yeah. And he was saying that him and I can't remember who it was, someone else, wanted to increase the width of the rinks by five feet. They yeah. said Boston College has that in their yeah. system, not Boston University. Boston University, I think, is an Olympic size rink. Yeah, and could. he says when he scouts in Boston College, he said it's some of the best hockey he's ever it's seen. A, it's a hybrid system. That's right. And he said it gives that extra, you know, two and a half feet on each side of the rink, and he said it opens things right up. And that that was the other kind of big argument. You know, I'm open minded. I guess I would say on that. I like I, you know, back in the day, if you want to go back into the '60s, I think. It's safe to say that probably every single rink in the NHL, all 12 of them or whatever in the late 60s, were probably slightly different dimensions, you know, and had different characteristics. Certainly the springiness of the boards or the dashers or, or the stanchions um, w- would be different in every single rink because there really wasn't a uniform, you know, size. Um, just like right now in the in the major leagues, every ballpark is a different, you know, yeah, the center right. field fence is a different mm-hmm. distance away in every ballpark in the in the league. That seems to be okay. So in some ways, like the width of the rink is probably not something I'd really object to, especially, you know, a five-foot total. Uh, International is 15 feet more, isn't it? It's 85 now wide. Yeah, it's 15 feet. It's 100, 200 by 100. It's 100 on the Olympic size and the same length for both. Mm -hmm. But on Olympic, it looks like the the goals are farther away from the backboards. Like there's more room behind the It does seem like that, yeah. I don't know if that's, you know, it just looks that way. I think that's true, yeah. Um, You know, 
I'm okay with some of those tinkering changes. If it's going to speed the game up, great. Uh, speed up, I don't mean in making people go faster. I just mean in fewer whistles, mm-hmm. fewer yeah. stupid stoppages. Um, I'd be okay with that. I wouldn't want to change the size of the net. I wouldn't want to go too much into the goalie equipment sizing unless it's to bring it back to where it was in the past. One of the things I do believe strongly in is the recording of statistics. And the minute you start tinkering with too much of that stuff, you can't, you have to put an asterisk after around all There's your no stats. There's no comparables anymore. Yeah. Right. There's no comparables. And, right. and I think that makes it difficult to, to be a fan and to, you know, try to picture, you know, what, how would Bobby Orr do in, in the hockey of today? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, maybe he'd be the same superstar he was back in the sixties and, and, you know, but I don't know that he would because maybe the Bobby Orr of today gets hit by the Scott Stevens of last uh, 10 years ago. And yeah, <laughs> there's a matter, antimatter collision. And you know, I don't know. I, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm a conservative person generally, small C conservative. I, I think that goes to hockey as well, but I'm not opposed like, you know, piloting something in the AHL like they did with mm-hmm. the, I like, I like, the, I like the no touch icing thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's worked very well. Some of the calls look a little sketchy, but they always did. They were always sketchy, you yeah. know, those those uh, touch icing calls. Now you don't see people risking their lives just to get a whistle on the other end of the ice. Um, so I, I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. That hasn't changed any stats. So, you know, I'm okay with that one. So, uh, I'm Jason, I'm glad you brought up Burke because he also was talking about he'd like to see less games. He'd like to see He also around mentioned 70. less games, 70 games. I think it was him and Ken Holland who mm-hmm. agreed on That's who it was, yeah. yeah. Uh, how, how what do you think about that? Se- uh, seventy games instead of eighty-two. And uh, second question: Back in the day, in the seventies, how many games did they play in a regular season? That's something I don't know. I think they played fewer games. It was like seventy-four okay. or seventy, maybe uh, if you go back far enough. Yeah, I'd be okay with fewer games. I don't think a season should ever be packed so that there has to be a back-to-back games. You know, I think yeah. hockey is a very punishing, hard-to-play sport. <laughs> I think at least a day's rest in between games is is only fair to players. I think it would reduce injuries and other things. So I'd be okay with fewer games starting still maybe in early October, finishing in late March, early April. And, you know, however, you know, take a break at Christmas and maybe I don't like the five-day break thing. I think that was a disaster Mm -hmm. this year. But 70 games, if it's fewer games to have the same, uh, um, you know, amount of competitiveness and, still tell the story as to which teams are the best and worst for playoff seating. Yeah. If playoff seating ever gets to mean anything again, then I'd be okay with fewer games. Yeah. So um, I know there's a lot more factors that went into this, but if having 70 games instead of 82 meant that we could go to the Olympics, would you be all for it? Um, I'd be okay with it. Um, I think I've said before in one of the video, you know, that I'm not, I'm not a huge Olympic fan and some of it's my own history. I grew right. up, uh, you know, cheering for the professional hockey players uh, on, you know, my NHL favorite team, and uh, and the Olympics weren't a factor at all. I liked the, watching the Olympics because we had a team there that yeah. wasn't expected to win, and, you know, look at the Americans in 1980. You know, they, they did manage to beat, you know, what's probably one of the most elite teams in the world. Yeah. Uh, with a bunch of college kids. Yeah, and we're decades apart, and we've only grew up on yeah. seeing NHL players in and the Olympics. And that's, so. that's fair, too. Um, but if we did have Olympics, because of the, the limited number of players that would be seconded over to the Olympics to actually watch or play in those games, I think there's no real reason to shut the league down in the meantime. Right. Keep keep going. I agree. Yeah. 
So, you know, let's not take a break where everyone sits at home and all the players who aren't in the Olympics are in their local grocery store. Oh, hi, Bob. I see you're not in Sochi. You know, <laughs> I see obviously you suck enough that you're still here and you're getting the two weeks off. You know, I, I just don't think that's uh, necessary. I think these people could still play. You know, look at uh, look at Pittsburgh after the Crosby injury. They got Crosby gone, Kunitz. They got Murray. Um, you know, let's say they were all playing somewhere else instead of being injured. They're still icing a darn good team. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'll ask you this. Again, it's a bit off topic, but it's still in the realm of rule changes. We You discussed that you don't like the five-day break. You would like that to be abolished. Yes. You, I know you have an issue with the coach's challenge, or maybe not the coach's challenge, but the consistency of what's goaltender interference and what's <laughs> yeah. not goal, goaltender interference. How, how do you think that they remedy this and get get things consistent i you know if if they possibly could do it i think they would have done it by now i hold out very little hope that they're going to get some consistency now i don't know what else they could do um i if i'm not mistaken that that play that everyone has seen where Kerry price is dragged <laughs> right out of the streets <laughs> practically back into the gold judges area uh, through yeah. the boards and i think that was called not goaltender interference it was, it was a good goal it was a good goal yeah and then there's other ones where, you know, uh, there's very incidental contact. And I can't see in a replay how the goalie in any way was interfered with to the degree that he wasn't able to do his job. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, unless Toronto or the same person in Toronto or New York is going to make all the decisions based on their thinking, so there's some consistency, fine. But if they're going to leave it up to individual referees looking at little iPads over in the corner, you know, and there's how many referees are there? In the NHL, 50 probably, at least. Yeah. Um, and they, they don't all see the world the same way. Uh, I think I think we're going to have a continued pack of trouble with this goaltender interference thing. I, I'm i way happier now, though, than I was in the days when, you know, the toe of someone's skate was in the crease. Yeah, the Brett Hall incident. Yes, the, the Brett Hall incident. You know, I think that was just, an, and that's why we're here. Exactly. Has it surprised you how many offsides have have happened that the linesmen have not caught because it seems like in the last year or two there's an awful lot of turn turn around in that and yeah. it's like nobody picks it up when the play's happening it's just when the the goal goes in they look at their little monitors on their bench and then they review it and then yep the linesman missed it and that seems to happen a lot lately that's a great point and i i you know i hadn't really thought about the uh the the increase in what appear to be missed calls because they're overturned on you know on review I shudder to think that that was going on all along. Maybe are the linesmen now knowing that they'll be overturned if they're a little off, so they they pay less attention, so they're less worried about calling it just exactly right because they know it'll get fixed. Uh, I doubt that's going on, but you know it's it's a possibility, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's a little concerning. What bothers me a, a little bit, I guess, is we have the technology now to put a chip in that hockey puck and to probably have ways, you know, like for instance, a NASCAR. They can give a poor NASCAR driver a speeding penalty when he's not even speeding because he crosses some line ahead of some other guy. Yeah. Um, and that's all because of technology, you know, and, and they can do that now. They can do that with the puck crossing the goal line. Did it cross the goal line or not underneath the goalie's pad? Um, so if we're going to use some technology, let's use all of the technology. <laughs> Make sure we get it right. Maybe take it out of the hands of the linesman altogether. If, if there's an offside play, there's some horn goes from the middle of the rink somewhere, and, and the linesmen don't even have a whistle. Maybe there aren't even we don't even need linesmen. I don't know. <laughs> That's obviously crazy. But so, uh, who's going to drop the puck then, three or four times and kick people out? The puck will be dropped by a robot. 
or, or, or it'll, it'll shoot down from the roof in a from cannon. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Or uh, just like in soccer, you know, uh, or football, one team elects to receive, the other team elects which end of the field they want to play from. Um, in hockey, have a flip a coin at the beginning, hopefully a loony, and one, one player or one team decides who's going to get the puck first. And the other team gets to decide what end of the ice they want. That'd be strange. It would be very strange. And, you know, <laughs> obviously these things are, are wacky, but, um, you know, they've already done it with the, delay, with the delayed offside. Delayed offside, this is another thing I didn't like about the 70s. If there was what today would be considered a delayed offside situation back in the 70s, it was offside and it was blown down. Yeah. And the game was just, oh, it was painful sometimes to get through the damn game. <laughs> yeah. Because of all these stupid whistles for no reason. Uh, but one thing they didn't call in the 70s, you know, if a goalie was a little, you know, heated up and he was getting tired, he'd just flick the puck over the glass yeah. and get a whistle. I actually didn't mind that because, you know, there's there's a, there, there was at least a reason for it. Yeah. Now, they call that a delay of game. It's so stupid. They call, they call the puck over the glass a delay of game, and it takes them probably two and a half minutes to get that puck dropped again after they <laughs> stuff the guy in the box, you know, and they all have a little huddle and they talk about it and they're waving their arms and all the players are circling around the, the refs and trying to tell them what really happened. Yeah. And the, the video replay people are looking at it and, you know, then they get the guy in the box. Well, yeah, the game has been delayed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think the referees are under a lot more pressure or stress than they used to be with all the, the video reviews and the replays? And do you think they're afraid to make the big calls now and they'd rather just make a call on the ice and then defer to the, the war room in Toronto? Uh, could be. I, 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 the last place I'd ever be, I guess, is in the mind of a referee. I don't know what they're thinking, but it has to be very, very hard to do any job when there are going to be seventeen or 18,000 of your colleagues in the, st- in the stands who now, unlike ever before, have the opportunity to look at your work from the center of the rink, from the high above center ice, uh, in super slow motion to see if you screwed your job up or not. I, I can't imagine what the pressure would be like on a referee to do that. I don't know that it affects them. It doesn't look like it affects them. They still make the calls they think they need to make, and they do get overturned sometimes. The double overturn the other night was a little strange, where you know, at one call was, whether was their goaltender, or sorry, was it, did the puck cross the line, I think was one call, and then the other call yeah. was, was their goaltender interference mm-hmm. prior yeah. to the puck, and it kind of went both ways in, in that one. Um, that can't be easy. It can't be easy. We've got human beings trying to do what we know we can do better without human beings. That's got to be tough. Um, this is, again, off topic. There are no off topic. We're just switching this topics. Is a, this is a podcast. That's we right. can talk about whatever we want to That's talk right. about. Here's something I've never asked you and something that we've never discussed. I don't know who you cheer for outside of Montreal. I know who you don't cheer for. You don't cheer for Boston. I don't think you're a huge fan of Philadelphia, but I, who do you cheer for outside of Montreal? Like when Montreal's out of the playoffs or they are last in this regular season, who are you rooting for? I root for stories. I don't root for teams. And I try to find a good story in every other team that's playing that's still left that I can get behind and, and find interesting. For mm-hmm. instance, I think the Clark MacArthur story is an amazing story out of Ottawa. Right. And for him to score you know, the, the big goal the mm-hmm. other night in, in the biggest game, after barely being able to come back and play at all, I thought it was wonderful. So if Ottawa keeps moving forward through the playoffs and does really well, um, I will want to follow the Clark MacArthur part of that story more than anything else. In the case of the Nashville-St. Louis series, I'm really following P.K. Subban because I always have. 
I was at PK Subban's very first home game in, in, Montreal. in Montreal. Yeah, and uh, they played him the night before in Philly, and they had a home and home. They played him on a Saturday night in Montreal. I was at that game. The fans went crazy every time his face was on the big screen, even in the warm up. And here's a guy who hadn't hadn't played one moment in Montreal at that point. Yeah. But they knew they loved what they saw. They and I did too from the time he was drafted. Yeah. What does PK stand for? Penalty killer, he said. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, the guy was amazing. So if Nashville does well, I'll be looking at PK Subban and hoping that he does well. The, the idea of him holding a cup up after all he's been through yeah. would be amazing. Yeah. On the other hand, for the same reason I think you've mentioned, Neil, in some of the videos you've done, uh, Jake Allen playing for St. Louis is a wonderful story for him and for Fredericton. Um, you know, where he's from. I, I think that's wonderful. And, you know, we're a Fredericton-based group of uh, people. And and uh, it's nice to have a hometown uh, son playing at that level of hockey. It's elite yeah. hockey. It's great. Uh, out West, you know, I think the whole uh, uh, Edmonton story just generally is great. Although, you know, I, I guess to answer your question more fully, once I get away from Montreal, I think maybe I'm I might feel like like I'm cheating on them <laughs> if I cheer for any other team. Yeah, that's understandable. But I can cheer for other things without cheating on my Montreal Canadiens. Right. Like exactly. ideas and stories. Yeah. Uh, you you mentioned Mark Arthur and his, his story. I think Ottawa has a few of those. Ottawa uh, has a few of those. Anderson. No, Anderson. Anderson's, Anderson's situation. Wife, yep. Anderson with the situation with his wife yeah. uh, and what he went through, um, you know, to taking that whole, you know, all the time off he had to take and... Uh, you know, he wasn't in a good headspace, and who would be? Yeah. Right? Um, I think that's a great part of the story, too, you know. And I don't like Ottawa, though. <laughs> I, I really don't. I don't like I don't, I don't. don't like the idea that Ottawa even has a team. And that's, is that fair? No, it's not fair. But Ottawa's not a big enough city to have a hockey team. You don't I'm, think so? I don't think so. I'm sorry. Winnipeg's smaller than Ottawa, isn't it? Yeah, but Winnipeg's a great city. <laughs> I, I, that's unfair, but um, I don't know. Like I, I like Ottawa as a place. I visited there, worked there many times, but uh, uh, and I've watched hockey games there, you know, a couple of times. And and they're, they're, it's a great place to watch a hockey game, no question. But like the first game, the first home game of the second round of the playoffs, they didn't even sell out the rinks. Right. Yeah, and that's just wacky. It's crazy. Yeah. Now there's a reason for it. You know, there's all kinds of reasons. You know, they put the ticket prices way up. Mm-hmm. They doubled the parking. Yeah. in the parking lot, and they did all these other things. And I think some fans said, screw you, I'll stay home watching on television. Exactly. It's on the national broadcast. I'll watch uh, Bob Cole or whatever. If they can endure that, I guess they can do anything. <laughs> yeah, I think that was Melnick's doing. Uh, yeah. don't think there's too many fans of, of Melnick out there. I don't think so. It's funny, you know, so many, so many fans in so many cities love their team but hate their team's management. Yeah. You know, and or love the, love the NHL, hate Gary Bettman. Oh, yeah. You know, there's, there's not a there's not a lot of love for for Gary Bettman out there. He gets booed wherever he goes. It doesn't matter what city. Uh, it's pretty comical to watch. It is. You know, like you're uh, every team that's won the cup in my recent memory. Yeah. You know, the fans, especially in their own rink, the fans are going crazy. You know, they just can't wait to see Patrick Kane hold the cup up or Sidney Crosby, whoever it is. Yeah. And they also can't wait to see Gary Bettman come out on the ice so they can boo him. It, it's, it's not even about hating Gary Bettman anymore. It's just, it's a tradition. Yeah. It's just what yeah. you do now. Yeah. <clears throat> He's just bobbling his head, closing yeah. his eyes and just. Yeah. I know. And it just, oh. Like, he, I, I don't know where he goes to bed at night, but I have a funny feeling he hangs upside down in a closet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's he's a very strange guy. Oh man! And he came from the NBA, right? He used to be the commissioner. Yes, of the, of he the, did. Yeah. And the owners love him, obviously, or, or he wouldn't be there. Exactly. So, you he's, know, uh, he does. You know, he makes the money. Yeah. But I think the Gary Bettman era, which is now getting a long, long time, it is. 
You know, I think that uh, he put hockey teams into U.S. cities that I didn't think uh, should have hockey teams. Uh, they didn't have a hockey culture, and it was artificial. And, and teams were fleeing Canadian cities like Winnipeg and Quebec City. But then I have to say, you know, Columbus, they fill that rink. Yep. And they when they fire that cannon, I mean, that's exciting stuff. And yep. Nashville is crazy for hockey. It, they are. I never would have thought that. Never in a million years. But they are nuts for hockey. And if they won a cup, you know, aside from the P.K. Subban thing, if Nashville won a Stanley Cup, oh, yeah. they'd be they'd be nuts. It wouldn't be like when Tampa Bay won the cup and they had a parade and people are walking by saying, what's that thing? <laughs> Let me ask you this. So we have Phoenix, the Phoenix situation. Jason, you and I. Arizona? Have, Arizona? Or, sorry. Every single the only reason, time. The only I reason I did team. that was because I just watched a video they released and Every Justin corrected them, so I had to jump on that. Time. <laughs> so, okay, Arizona. We all know the Arizona situation. They're struggling. It's it's not a surprise. Do you think the addition of Las Vegas being so close to, to Phoenix will create some kind of rivalry between the two? And actually help both teams thrive? I was watching Post to Post when you were talking about rivalries. Yep. And, and you mentioned the possibility of a Phoenix-Arizona, um, Las Vegas rivalry. I mean, Arizona borders Nevada. Yeah. You and I have been across the Hoover Dam. and We have. We have. And over to the Arizona side. But Phoenix is a long way from there. Right. Um, I, I, I don't know what the culture's like out there because there's no hockey culture to start with. Exactly. Other than Austin Matthews, he came from that system. And that's that proves a lot of people right and probably proves a lot of us wrong. Yeah. That, you know, Phoenix or Arizona or Glendale or whatever couldn't be a good breeding ground for, for a new hockey thing to happen in California or Arizona. As it, but it has happened in California and Arizona with players coming up through leagues and, and playing in the NHL and doing really well. Uh, rivalry speaking, I think Las Vegas will have as much of a chance of having a rivalry with Colorado or with LA, I think Las Vegas and LA, there's mm-hmm. a big, there's quite a dichotomy there. Mm. It's like the Montreal, Toronto, uh, Philly, Pittsburgh, you know, LA and Las Vegas are not that far apart geographically. You know, it's just a few hours drive across the desert. Yeah. Just uh, over the, over the mountains, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Or through the mountains. Well, there's mountains and desert yeah. both sides, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, I think there's as much as likely to be a rivalry in that direction as anywhere else. I don't know if Las Vegas will ever build itself on a rivalry to start with. I think, oh yeah, a lot. It'll be a lot like the Florida games in over Christmas. You know, when Toronto and Montreal go down and play, and seventy five percent of the rink is cheering for the the road team. Yeah, that's because a, they're down that's there on vacation. See, yeah, a lot of people in Las Vegas will be there on vacation, and you know, there's a lot of people that go to Las Vegas uh, already now to look to watch Cirque du Soleil or watch a comedian. Yep. or pull on the slot machines, and now they'll add a hockey game to that. But apparently Las Vegas has all kinds of season ticket holders. Yeah, it's like 14000 or something crazy. Yeah, and I'm not sure how real that is. The casinos go in and buy up, you know, See, I think the I think or... the first 8000 sold quite quickly, and they, they struggled towards the, uh, the yeah. end, but they did get where they wanted to get. But yeah. that's just it. If, if it's the casinos buying and offering them to the high roller, mm. you know, players that go there, and yep. then if they decide not to go there those nights, there could still be visually plenty of empty seats, even though the, the tickets are sold, and that doesn't look good for a team that's first starting. no. Yeah. Yeah, and you know the, now with it's a it's the first real expansion team in a while where there's been an expansion draft. I'm really excited with the coach they've got, Gerard Gallant, um, to build a brand new team from scratch, picking you know a, probably a fairly fair to middle and good player from every other team in the league, and then having a you know a fairly decent draft pick in the in yep. the uh, entry draft. 
Um, I, I'm excited to see Las Vegas do well. You know, I, I, I we need more balance to make the East and the West equal. Mm-hmm. This this uneven number of teams with two more teams being in the East, I think, is not great. It's not really fair to the teams in the East. They have that much harder percentage wise to mm-hmm. you know make the playoffs than the Western teams do. I I don't know how you fix that because even teams like Columbus, almost you could even count Chicago. You could certainly count St. Louis and Nashville are really Eastern based. You know, media markets. Yeah. You know, they're not really mid, well, maybe Midwest, they're certainly not West. I, I'd almost favor three divisions, you know, an, an East Atlantic ki- kind of conferences to me. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, divisions are maybe three conferences. Yeah. With divisions in between yeah. or inside them. <clears throat> the, um, you know, the Atlantic could have essentially the coastal teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, there could be a central division and then a Western division or conference yeah. um, where, you know, you can take. Let's say you had 33 teams in the league altogether. You'd have 11, 11, 11, you know, and work it out that way. Um, right now, I, I just think to artificially populate the West with teams uh, or move things around out there, it's not going to fix the problem, you know. But I do like the idea of Las Vegas having a team. Good on them. But I think Quebec City should have been brought in. Right. Uh, and, and if the Quebec City is not getting in because there's already 16 teams in the East uh, and we can't have any more, then I'm I'm against that. Do you find uh do you find expansion waters down the product? Oh yeah. No question it does. But I think I've been proven wrong in my past feelings about expansion watering down. Like I you know, when we went from six teams to twelve teams in nineteen sixty eight, um, there was a lot of talk about the watering down. Um a lot of players that that were just a little on the dying edge of their career would, would you know, went to St. Louis for instance, you know, they got they got uh, Glenn Sather for for Pete's sakes played for the St. Louis Blues, you know, back in the early days, and he had been a Ranger I think prior to that, uh, a long time ago. But you know, some of those players ended up going to those expansion teams, and it was interesting. But but they put basically all the new teams in one division, and St. Louis would usually win the division, and then they get blown <laughs> out in four games in the in the finals. Yeah. Um. So it it didn't really work. Um. But now you know. We we talked a lot, quite a while ago now about the fourth line on every team being able to do some damage. I think that's proof that you know if if it is watered down, it's not badly watered mm-hmm. down. A fourth line can skate with another team's first line and yeah. usually you know do well. Now, if you took, let's say, all the talent in the NHL and went back to twelve teams, you know, wow, yeah, you would have unbelievable <laughs> hockey, unbelievable. And you'd have all kinds of people in the minors that would be playing great hockey in the minors. And that that's another one of my unorthodox long-term wishes. You'd like to see 12 teams? No, no. no. I, but I'd like to see, you know what they do in in the in England, you know, with the Barclays Premier League. That's right, yeah. They have a Premier League. Right, okay. I see where all the teams, you know, have to compete to get in that league. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you finish in the bottom two or three, you drop to the next league down, and the top teams in that next league down come up and play in your league. And if you're like Leicester City and you can hang on through a couple of seasons, you can go from not even being in the league to winning the, the cup. Um, and what a great story. I think that involves the entire continent in, in hockey because that little team and, you know, the Doketown Hitmen or the Grand Lake, you know, uh, River Rats. River Rats. They are. <laughs> the Grand Lake Salmon Jiggers. Um, you know, they could actually, you know, if, if all the cards fell their way in 10 yeah. years time, they could actually be playing in a, you know, in the East coast league or something and they could move their way up. And, and I, you know, obviously that'll never happen. 
because of Gary Bettman and, and the way the owners want it. It's a monopoly, and they want to keep it. Yeah. So they'll never, ever let anyone sneak into the league through some stupid thing like performance. You know, it's all about money. Yeah, in a situation like that, we could see the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Toronto Marlies in the same league. Yeah, sure. That'd be interesting. You've got Manchester United and Manchester City, you yeah. know, in the BPL, and they're only, you know, a couple of miles apart, and they're both competitive, and they're both near the top of the standings. And I, I just think that would be wonderful. It'll, it'll never happen in my lifetime. And it probably won't happen in your lifetimes, but uh, it would really shake up the game. Fun to think about. Great. Great to think about. A free agent might sign with the team in the second tier league, you know, and say, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe. They'll, they'll get a Radulov or they'll get, uh, you know, uh, whoever. And because he thinks that team is going to finish in the top and get in the other league and God knows what happens after that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, I think that's good right there. That was a good discussion. It was yeah. a, uh, about an hour, I guess, I think. Yeah. I enjoyed it very much. Well, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right. So once again, I just wanted to thank Brent for coming in studio with us and graciously donating his time. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I know I did. If you have feedback for us, hit us up on Twitter at Post the Post Show. And as always, make sure you're watching the videos, youtube.com slash post the post. Neil and Justin are putting an enormous amount of time and effort into that to try to grow the YouTube hockey community. If you like what they're doing, make sure you subscribe to show your support. Thank you for taking the time to download or stream or just listen to this episode of this podcast. And until next time, adios.